You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter at Thoroughly Good, Thoroughly Good Me on Facebook, or Thoroughly underscore on Instagram. The Hertfordshire Music Festival, like a great many other arts festivals across the UK, was forced to pivot their activities at fairly short notice last year following the ban on large gatherings in March 2020. The festival returns this year and it runs from the 4th to the 10th of June. Festivals intent on returning to live events are juggling different scenarios, as you'll hear in the next podcast uh, from Cheltenham Festivals. But they juggle scenarios with different health and safety measures in addition to different projected incomes. Where attention rests, therefore, is on the programming choices made in response to anticipated restrictions. In the case of Hertfordshire Festival of Music's programme, it was in fact deferred from last year, Here, the programme focuses on small-scale orchestral works, community-focused activities and chamber music experiences. But this, after a year of isolation, speaks to the audience with much-needed immediacy, reinforcing key values we all need to be reminded of and probably need to shout a little bit louder about right now. First, how proximity and intimacy in the listening experience can heighten the connection between performer and audience member. I think that's vital right now. And in the case of the dementia-friendly and neurodiverse-friendly events in the Hertfordshire Festival of Music programme, well, these underline the importance of accessibility and inclusivity for all. More and more, these things speak to me personally. Hertfordshire places music at the heart of the community. It is a community that has the opportunity to coalesce around live music. One of those events... ZRI Ensemble's Gypsy Jazz Klezmer treatment of tunes from Bach to Taylor Swift. I really hope they'll dig out Donna Summer's I Feel Love somewhere in their McMullen Brewery Courtyard session is already sold out. There's music by Beethoven, Peart and Judith Weir from principal artist violinist Chloe Hanslip and pianist Danny Driver, the Hertfordshire Festival of Music Chamber Orchestra conducted by Tom Hammond, and a concert from the Albion String Quartet, as well as a piano recital from Florian Mitria. The festival is clearly a labour of love for two friends who go back a long way, and perhaps that's what gives the festival its sense of warmth and sincerity. I spoke to artistic directors James Francis Brown and Tom Hammond a few weeks ago, We started with the customary question, which I hope I don't have to ask too many more times in the future. Can you see out of your nearest window? Um, Actually, if I lean backwards slightly, I can see the shard, which we only realised when someone kind of cut the hedges down in our estate over last summer. (laughs) But I, what I can see is a bit of a car park in South Bermondsey. You describe that you describe you having an estate. That makes it sound as though you have a very grand house in Bermondsey. And <laughs> um, I have a very small. Oh, okay. Oh, how disappointing. Oh, uh, okay, <laughs> fine. Uh, so when when was the hedge taken down? That would have been last summer, I think they did it. And then one night I was just staring out the kitchen window, you know, in a kind of lockdown moment of boredom, and thought. Oh, hang on! I can see this shard for me. So, if we sell our flat, we're just going to say, you know, views of the shard. 
<laughs> views of the Thames. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. put ten grand on it. <laughs> um, I asked because uh, the other day, me and my partner sort of woke up to hear someone drilling in the garden next door, and we discovered two tree surgeons cutting down two massive trees, and yeah. we felt almost sort of like, even though it wasn't our tree, it was almost like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? Don't do that. Uh, and they've removed them. And now there is so much light. It's almost <clears throat> oppressive. Um, yeah. And I and now I have to look into their back garden. And I just think they should have kept the trees where they were. Um, anyway, sorry. That's a, a, a moment of whimsy. I'm with you on the tree thing. Uh, Mr. Brown, sir, what can you see yeah. out of your nearest window? Out of my, where I am in my study, I can see uh, uh, an ageing buddlier that looks as if it might have given its best years ago. Uh, it's quiet, I've got blue sky out the back. Uh, out the other side of my house is a train line, which does its best to disturb me every five minutes or so. Did you plant, did you plant the buddleia? The buddleia self-seeded. Right. Which is where we've, and we thought it put itself in a lovely spot and we've had a great affection for it. But um, And through that I can see a, a bit of lawn. I've got a tiny postage stamp sized lawn, which I proudly sowed last, last June, one of, my, one of my lockdown projects. Right. And it's looking as if it survived the winter. So that's right. my... You that sound surprised. When I look out of the window when I'm sort of... I, I don't know... Out. I don't know of anybody who speaks fondly of buddleys. I I always thought that oh. they were a massive pain in the arse. But then you get the um you get the butterflies. You know they they can be swarmed. That's the absolute butterfly and magnet. Right. If you like butterflies, which right. I do. Well, that well that's a boom that's then. A plant, yeah. That that's a that's a <laughs> dividend. Uh yeah, I've, I've already briefed you about this, so this isn't really going to come as a surprise. But what I find utterly enthralling about your backdrop, sir, is that you don't have one piano, but you have two. No, oh, this is my widescreen. Um, yes, my my widescreen <laughs> camera, um, <laughs> also displaying my so-called. I think it's called bookcase credibility. Is that what and it I, is? I, I don't know if that's become like passe to call it that now. But this is my this is my study. This is my sort of nerve cell um, <laughs> and uh, nerve center. Sorry, not yeah, nerve. I was going to say that sounds <laughs> vaguely <laughs> uncomfortable. Yes. So it's got all my scores there. Pianos to my wife's one of them. Not one of the pianos. My <laughs> no, wife. no, okay, yes. One of the <laughs> and I, um, I am now what is sort of affectionately, I think, known to my friends as the Red Hill Philharmonic. Oh. Um, because I play sort of concerto uh, arrangement, you know, the piano parts of concertos, if friends are about to sort of limber up for something. I love doing that. I love crashing through, you know, concertos as, as well as I can. I'm not a I'm not a sort of in practice pianist now. That's the one of those is my sort of composing piano because it sounds generous, you know. The other one's a bit wooden, <laughs> and, and so I let them have that when they come round. Right. But, um, yes. You save the I good stuff you for your. Show, I think you should show off and say who, who whom you've accompanied in a concerto. Um, I think there might, be reasons, there might be legal reasons, Tom, why I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> I think that's a cop-out. I don't believe you. <laughs> I think that's nonsense. Uh, however, um, whether it is book, book, uh, bookshelf credibility or not, I've got to say I really envy all of those Eulenberg scores. That looks like somebody has taken a great deal of time to mm. arrange them. Well, they're, they're, no, because they're in alphabetical order. So, yes, so they're you know, uh, self-arranging. But what you can't see is my little guilty whiskey stash on oh. the corner. 
So I, I'm, I'm in a sort of director's chair and I could just spin round and reach for my whiskey, reach for my notebooks and, and actually, no, I can't quite reach my scores. But fine, fine. It's nice. It's my cockpit, really. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell, tell me how you both know each other because you are working together on this year's Hertfordshire Music Festival. Oh, we go back quite a few years now, don't we, Tom? Met yeah, but how did we first actually meet? I, I mean, um, we've got a lot of mutual friends, but... Green rooms. Um, yeah. Preparing for a concert you were conducting um, at St John's. That's the that's the sort of first time. I think it might have been uh, Matthew Matthew Taylor's. No, that's not the first time I remember meeting you, but it's one of the early times. And and we sort of you know met in a, met on the stairs going up. I think you would just come back. No, going coming down. You just sort of come back from the from performing. And I wanted to tell you. Um, genuinely, sincerely, how much I've enjoyed the performance. I think you were you were quite pleased about that. We shook hands, had a had a, probably a few beers, and um, and it sort of moved moved on from there. Lotting a, a lot of musical loves, actually, don't we? Um, which gradually transpired. I'm um, assuming there's a love of Sibelius. Absolutely, that was one of the first. In fact, I think was Sibelius in that program, Tom. Probably <laughs> a few years ago, probably That's 20 it. years, might be 20 years ago now, yeah. 15, 15 maybe. Uh, and Tom, what of, uh, of those times when you've worked together? Uh, give me a highlight. Well, so because we, we worked together on a number of things, and um, because you know, James is first and foremost a composer, and um, I struggle to. <laughs> I struggle to find composers that I really do genuinely love their music who are still, who, who are breathing. I mean, that's, you know, that's the truth. And, um, uh, you know, James is almost amongst those. Almost? Do you mean he's almost breathing? Or he's <laughs> almost, almost he, he, is, he almost <laughs> creates output that you almost like? I'll put my teeth back in. He's foremost rather than almost. Right. Um, and I suppose of many highlights, I would say... It would just be working on a performing his, his clarinet concerto, which is called, it's got a subtitle, it's called Lost Lanes, Shadow Groves. It relates to a part of North Norfolk, which I've never been to, sadly, but um, James could probably tell you more about it. But I think that would be, yeah, I, I'll put that as a, as a highlight. So it's in that, it's in that conductor-composer relationship, uh, well... as opposed to our joint festival relationship. Uh, where in North Norfolk uh, did you derive inspiration from for that, um, Mr it's Brown? It's a little village, not very well known, actually called Ingworth, mm -hmm. uh, which is just about a mile outside Aylsham, which is about 10 miles north of Norwich. So it's in between Norwich and the coast of, of Cromer. All sort of wide cornfields and uh, gentle hills. Everybody says that Norfolk is completely flat, but it's not. It's got gentle hills and the cottage I was in when I was writing most of it is on one of those gentle hills and um yeah a real a real retreat I I no longer have access to it and it's been a cause of sorrow for the last three two or three years actually. a sort of hint at, um, a, at, a, at a legal <laughs> issue another legal issue oh no 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 that's oh. that's no that's a more a financial issue oh, right. Okay, right. <laughs> um, how insensitive you know, one of those things that have that's all right. <laughs> um, so, but don't know. I mean, I'd like to say a little bit in return. Thanks, Tom, for for that comment about that. Um, uh, you, you know, the the things that sparks off this thing we call chemistry between musicians 
often it's what you talk about, the, the shared enthusiasm. But of course, I've heard Tom conduct this music, and this uh, until music passes through a sort of human body, you really don't know what they think. There's, you can be very pleased, flattered by comments, but when you actually hear the sense of of timing and pace and uh, sensitivity to harmonic kind of um, shaping, that's when you know you've made it across the void to another person with with the music. And I've always felt very very much that Tom uh, sort of is the bridge for for that. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I, right, they're starting to sound like a kind of mutual... I was, I was no, going to say, I'd like to point out that our, our relationship is based, mainly based on taking the piss out of each other at all points. So you're seeing a rare moment of brotherly love here. Well, we <laughs> can get fine. on to that later. That's fine. There's time. There's time. What I am interested when I hear you say that is uh, there are two questions that arise um, from me, which is... You know, as a composer, if you are composing something and you hear it in your head, are you sort of reasonably locked into how you hear it in your head, such that when someone else takes it and conducts it, there is some sort of period of adjustment for you as a composer, James? Yes, there's always there's always something that surprises me about what somebody else does. Sometimes I think that contextually they haven't quite maybe made this connection between one passage and another in some way um and sometimes it surprises in the other very much the other way you know and they reveal to me something some layer subconscious layer that i haven't really noticed myself when i was when i was composing it or at least it hadn't been to the fore you know in the in the complex layered web of what music is in my mind you know and that's fascinating because it tells you how much the subconscious has to do with with not only creating but but performing sifting those layers and and bringing them to the fore or putting them back why is a tune particularly or a sub melody or a harmony why does that need to be emphasized in such a way that you notice it like a like um, a lamppost going past in the car, you, sometimes you, you're aware that you've got hundreds of them going past, and then occasionally you think, ah, there's a lamppost that measures, that points something, it's whatever, you know, not perhaps a, a particularly beautiful metaphor, but um, yeah, uh, there we are. I wonder then whether there is a, I understand composers will write for soloists, would a composer write for a conductor? Yes, I think so. Yes, I mean it. That's a very interesting, very interesting question because, of course, there is that slight gap between the, you know, let's say the end of the baton and the reception of the orchestra itself to the idea that the conductor is communicating. I think knowing knowing that the sense of energy. It's probably a little bit more generalised. You can't you can't always say I know what kind of tone that conductor will produce. You you, you might have a, a a good stab at that, but 
Um, I think the sense of energy and vitality in rhythms and things like that and placing of ideas, yes, you can anticipate uh, and write for that in some way, although composing is, there's as much that is just letting the music breathe its own lines uh, as well in kind of counterbalance to that. It sounds, like glor- it sounds like a glorious working life, I have to say, but obviously bear in mind that I'm slightly biased because what I can see is all of those Eulenburg scores. And so, you know, I have a slightly different view <laughs> of... I have never composed anything other than a GCSE piece and nobody should ever be subjected to that um, because it was truly awful. Uh, I'm conscious that we're meant to be talking about the festival, but this is kind of what happened, so forgive me. Um, uh, tell me about... Tom, tell me about the festival that is coming back after a year in the wilderness, pandemic-inflicted wilderness. Well, we've managed to rescue about 80%, I think, of what should have happened last June. Um, And we're very pleased that we've been able to do that. Um, We've taken the approach of um, doing short concerts repeated quite often, either exactly the same programme or two concerts by the same ensemble um, and they won't last any longer than an hour and we're going to be really mindful of people's um, how they feel you know I think it'd be perfectly safe but I know it's important that people feel safe so we've spent an awful lot of effort and will do and in fact it turns out it's way more complicated to plan a festival for about a third of the people who could turn up <laughs> to to turn up than it would be to just let everyone turn up. Can you explain um, for those of us who are fascinated by the detail of administration and event management, why why is that the case? The principal thing is you have to build a bubbled seating plan and the ramifications of that, believe you me, are horrendous and bear not to be listened to by anyone else. But if you book a seat for anything in the next few months, be it a festival like ours or go to the theatre, whatever, just have a bit of sympathy for the person who put that seating plan together because it is a nightmare. There's no easy way of doing it. The way that we've had to do it is we've had to make assumptions of the types of numbers of groups that will turn up to the type of event. So, for example, there are two performances for children by the one from Matthew Sharp, and we've just been really cliched and said, well, there's lots of four seats for mom and dad and two kids or there's two, you know, three for mom and dad and, and, and an only child. But if it comes to the point where <clears throat> one person looks on our seating map and says, oh, I'd love to come, but there's a six block of seats left. I'm afraid they have to buy the six or they can't come. And that's and it's so frustrating because we obviously we want absolutely everyone to come. We also had to, again, this is for boring technical computer based reasons. We couldn't offer any concessions. So we've had to squash all the ticket prices into one ticket price this year, which we despise because, of course, we want to offer lots of concessions, particularly for people who are in full-time education. Um, so it's been a bit of a nightmare, but I think, hope, it will be extremely worth it <laughs> at yes. the end of it all. Are you excited by the prospect? Before we get onto the programmes, I mean, are you excited about... Because I, I don't know, I imagine that, that having to go through all of that kind of process makes it a bit of a pain, uh, such that maybe it's quite anxiety-inducing, uh, such that when the festival does begin, it's either a relief or it's an even bigger source of anxiety. Yeah, well, that's an amazingly good question. I mean, to, 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 to me, to go to one of the performances, absolutely can't 
wait. I know it's going to be a thrill. Um, I'm, unfortunately, in one way, and I've never thought I would say this, I'm conducting in one of them. And I say unfortunately because that will be the first performance I've done since March last year. And I have kind of forgotten what to do. And I know because I've been speaking with the musicians of the of the, of the small orchestra that we've booked, and um, for whom, for many of whom, this is going to be their first live performance back as well. Um, that everyone is feeling, um, understandably, pretty nervous about the whole process. I think what will, hopefully, what will happen is we'll a quickly forget our nerves and quickly forget our hang-ups about having had so long, and also b we'll probably be a bit more forgiving of one another. And do you know what? If 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 I'm not on the finest conducting a musical fettle, and if the you know our string players, it's mainly string group, aren't also at the top of their game, actually, who who cares? Because mm. mm. it's just live music, and that's all that matters. I mean, what you're saying, Tom, it's like sort of coming, you know, waking up and suddenly a bright light coming on. You're you're, you're dazzled suddenly by the. We're normally acclimatized. I mean. You know, this has been the, the 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 least amount of connection with music that you and I will have had for for twenty thirty years, um, and then suddenly you're back in those bright lights. But I I think that there's my feeling is that something of what's happened over the past year will actually lift the imagination in the playing in some way once that initial edge of exposure is is got over, which maybe sort of like one of those things that maybe lasts a couple of minutes who knows i mean we're all different but i think that that sense of what we've all been through a collective sense of society um and and after all you've you've chosen really because your choice which i thoroughly sort of commended in the orchestral repertoire it's a very interestingly thoughtful program um with high energy but also a kind of reflectiveness that i think people will appreciate this year particularly um and i imagine you connecting with that um particular uh, thoughtfulness so i mean so i mean we were to perform um the beethoven concerto so chloe hanslip mm. the, the fabulous chloe hanslip who's our principal artist this year and given what 2020 should have been, it was clear that the Beethoven concerto would have been a lovely thing to do. Um, that can't happen. So we came really to a very different place. Um, we've got a small string orchestra, we have to be slightly spaced apart. We can't have anywhere near the amount of audience that the lovely venue could hold. So there's financial implications as well. So four shortish works, and it was Chloe's suggestion that we include the Arbo Pet Fracture, which I just didn't know before. And as soon as I heard it, I thought, you know, I don't know if this is why she suggested it, I'd like to think it is, is that if I was to put a piece in a concert that would not feel like it was too much of a, a memorial to the last year, but something that's just powerful, and probably each listener will take away something slightly different from it. Um, you know, for me, it's just, it's a purely musical thing. But I think it might be quite an emotional, emotional experience. But the the the, the performance, the, those two performances both start. Well, they're the same concert twice, but they both start with the Bartok Romanian folk dances, which we're always actually going to be in that concert, and that's just because they're brilliant and they're energised and they're fun and they're 
to be played around with by the musicians as well. So that, I'm going to say, I'm thinking already to the rehearsals just to say, look, don't be scared. Don't be trying to get this right. Just like have fun. then think about the sort of the low level excitement that I experience when I attend a festival event there is a slightly different buzz when you attend a festival event I wonder whether whether there is why well, get the impression I get from the website is that there is a community attached to this and that there will be a community who feels the benefit from it is that is that how Hertfordshire Music Festival is yeah I mean uh, this is one of the things that Tom and I spoke about very early on what we want the feel of the whole festival to be um you know, a lot of a lot of young people's understanding of what a music festival is is actually a competitive festival. You know that they go and play. Uh, some people confuse the sort of terminology to some extent, and quite understandably so, because there are so many regional music festivals where young players go and they play their things, they get nervous and so on, and there's a judgment, you know, and so on. Um, and I think we felt early on that we'd like to sort of unpick any of that sort of edgy nervous sort of association with music and um and which is why you know we we decided to have a master class rather than a, a sort of competition for players you know a master class where you you've, you've got to the point okay we have to make a decision about who can play in it but when they actually come and play it's it's not about competition it's about sharing hmm. imagination and being and allowing things to be drawn out of you uh and I think that's the feeling. You, there's a buzz, as you absolutely the right word of a festival. People stay, they hang over for a few days. You get sort of cross-pollination. Composers might come along and meet and hear, hear a new piece, and then they discuss what they've heard. Uh, you, can only, you can only do that in a festival, I think. You, I, I'm not sure you can do it so well in a sort of concert series. Wonderful as those things are, we need many of them, of course. But they are sort of self-standing, slightly isolated events. With a festival, you get a feeling of a of a family emerging, and you know we've had we've got so many supporters of the festival, which uh, who are you know at the moment unsung, let's say. Um, we, our friends of the festival, for example, have have really. Um, you know, we've, we have returning friends who are supporting the festival uh, in, in all sorts of ways, financially, with their interest and so on, um, about the programmes. And we have um, uh, uh, the trustees of the festival, should say, very, very supportive group of people who um, have... Yeah, absolutely gone beyond the call of duty, as it were, to keep the festival on its feet in, in a difficult time. What can you tempt me with? Okay. James, do you want to start or do you want me to start? I don't want to... uh, well, how do, we, how do we choose when we've obviously love everything we've put together? I should hope so. I mean, that would be really awkward. Thing... <laughs> yeah, that's real. <laughs> but even though some people may, we may have our suspicions about what may. Uh, attract 
an audience. We also have our own personal sort of particular corners and interests. Right, let's go um, with the particular I, corners of interest then. Let's 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 go well, with that one first. Driving out, you want me to move on and, and highlight something? <laughs> I, well, I do think that the orchestral concert, as we've just said, is going to be a highlight. I also think that um, uh, um, Chloe's Chloe Hanslip's performance with Danny Driver of the two last Beethoven um, sonatas. My feeling is there's going to be something quite special going on there as well. Um, and uh, those pieces, they, they in, in a way, they, they sort of exemplify what the whole festival, encapsulate what the whole festival is sort of um, saying. There's the Kreutzer Sonata, which is the um, earlier Beethoven piece, is full of energy and, and vision and um, variety. But then there's the Opus 96, the G major final sonata of Beethoven, which is later, 1816. You know, there he is, profoundly deaf. Um, and it's such an intimate, engaging, genial, loving piece. Um, and um, I, that sort of, I think that encapsulates the feeling of the range of the festival. Um, but, and, uh, you know, we've just been working on the masterclass, uh, listening to the, the wonderful masterclass entrance that we've had. And very, both of us, Tom, yeah. very moved. I, 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 you know, I think, I don't know if it's fanciful to say this, but I think that even the performers who have uh, given their applications to us, we've, we've heard, I think that they've sound, they've experienced something in the past year. Um, as I say, maybe that is fanciful, but you know, I hear a kind of wisdom in so much of the playing that that tells me something's gone on. Um, and obviously, we can't uh, at the moment. I don't know when um, this this obviously goes out, but um, we're in the process of the final uh, selection. But I'm absolutely thrilled by all of them, the applicants. Would you Would you agree, Tom? Yeah, yeah. There is something else and horrible to you know make decisions that might disappoint some people um yeah. in terms of my festival hearts actually it's more the range across the thing so we've always tried to do this and i think we've kept it despite everything this year which is that if you were to turn up for a day or so particularly in our main home uh, venue of hartford itself is that you could stay and experience lots of different styles of music and have a a particularly nice time because you don't have to travel very far between the venues for them and everything's been thought about with the kind of you know the customer I hate that phrase but the customer at heart so for example on the saturday having if you wish to take in one of the concerts that i'm conducting with the string orchestra then later that evening in actually in the brewery or part sort of part of the brewery yard of mcmullen who are the Hartford Brewing people and um, we've got a group called ZRI um, performing who takes some um, explaining but basically if you imagine a fusion of klezmer um, folk as in essentially sort of Hungarian stuff that makes you dance and classical music that's what stuff you've got. that makes you dance <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, there's a bit of a link there with the bar top from earlier in that evening, but and then and and because it's in a brewery, guess what? They're going to be <laughs> no, really. Yeah. <laughs> and believe you me, because we've had a few kind of technical issues with stuff to do with 
what we're allowed to do. So the fact is, we are organising a piss up in a brewery, and it's nice. really worrying me that we're going to get it right. But we will. Um, but then the next day, you stay over in one of the lovely hotels that there are there, um, and you can catch something completely different, which is Fontanello, who are a recorder console, um, and they're celebrating the fact that the oldest Quaker um, Friends meeting house that's still in use in the entire world is in Hartford. It was built in 1670. Ordinarily, the performance wouldn't happen in that space, but it's too small. We can't distance people. So we're just going around the corner um, for that. And Fontenelle are an amazing group. Um, they their, their most recent public appearance was on 9, 10, 9 out of 10 counts to do countdown. If that gives anyone an idea of how unstuffy they can actually be. But they're, they're celebrating the year 1670 itself through music, and that relates to that building. But that then links back to on the Friday night, um, if one were to have come on the Friday, Saturday and Sunday, um, in the, I'm just checking, yeah, in the first concert, there's a Haydn string quartet, and we always have a little bit of Haydn in our programming because, um, fascinatingly, he actually spent two summer holidays just outside Hartford in a house that is still standing. It's the only building in this country that Haydn lived in that's still there. And this is kind of really not that well known uh, about. And so Haydn would have, when he was in in and around Hartford, he was staying with the Quaker family. So there's the Quaker meeting house that's already 100 years old by the time Haydn turns up. He's staying with the local big Quaker family. He absolutely visited that space there's no two ways about it he would have gone there and um, so in normal times you can go inside the Quaker house it's really not changed very much at all and it's beautiful its acoustics are amazing for music as well because it's just wood and thick walls and um, so you actually in you know the 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 the, the geist of Haydn is is there um how long how long have you known that is that something that you've just discovered over the past year, or have you known it for a long time, just like put it in a folder somewhere and saved it for a moment in time like this? Well, we um, we have known about it for a while. In fact, on our website, um, it's shoved over to the side under the more thing at the moment because we've got so much stuff to talk about, but there is a more detailed history about this. But we found out about it having after we started the festival, Somebody somewhere in the local music community, I forget who it was, just dropped this thing about Haydn stayed around the corner. And I was, sorry, what? And then we sort of carried on researching. And I've actually, you know, we've actually taken it quite far now. We know quite a lot about it. What we don't know yet are, is exactly what he wrote whilst he was staying there. But there are a number of major compositions, including the Surprise Symphony and the Miracle Symphony, that have got every chance were penned in this house, which is still there. Um, and I just love that, that the, 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 the relationship came because when Haydn was staying in central London, he was giving keyboard lessons to some of the, you know, friends of Salomon. And one was a guy called Nathaniel Brasi, we think it's pronounced B-R-A-S-S-E-Y. And so his daughter wanted keyboard lessons from the famous Mr. Haydn and all this stuff. And then a bit later that summer, Haydn complained about how noisy it was to stay in Soho and Cover Garden. So Brasi said, basically, look, I've got a nice little summer, you know, I've got a house out in the country, 20 miles up the roads, half a day on a horse, I suppose. <laughs> um, and 
he went and stayed there for the rest of his summer holidays. And there's a letter he writes back to a very good friend in Vienna saying, oh, you know, I'm staying in this lovely house. There's also a great little sub-story, isn't there, James? You tell this one, because it's it's really lovely that Haydn again talks about one night after after dinner with this family. Well, yes, yes. I mean, I, I, who knows whether this has been exaggerated with time, but it seems that one of the Brassi family, uh, it was, I think it was Nathaniel, but... You, yeah, it was. Everyone would have to do their own research. <laughs> um, he, he listened to Haydn talking about his childhood, which had been quite difficult um, in, uh, in, in in Vienna and what well, was Hungary, of course. But um, uh, and he Haydn was telling about the sort of general poverty that he'd experienced, um, and uh, Nathaniel, I think, was quite stunned by this, and suddenly dashed to the drawer with a sort of flintlock pistol, put it to his head and said, I have known nothing of this sort of suffering. I'm not worthy to live. Now, this sounds very melodramatic, but I, it was actually noted in somehow in Haydn's diary. He he sort of grappled with uh, with him and said, look, don't be so silly. <laughs> put that down. <laughs> let's but what a, what a moment in that. Uh, that how it's it's the subject it's the sort of thing i can imagine alan bennett getting writing a play about you know you've been listening to the thoroughly good classical music podcast my name is john jacob subscribe to the podcast via apple podcast spotify podfollow audioboom or acast follow thoroughly good on twitter at thoroughly good thoroughly good on instagram at thoroughly underscore good and find thoroughly good on facebook by searching for thoroughly good me